Well, beloved, let's start our study again with John Whitlock as we're working through his book in a quicker fashion than Thomas Watson. The Great Duty of Keeping Ourselves from Iniquity. Again, Psalm 18.23, I have kept myself from mine iniquities. The sense of the reality that we all have our special sins, not that they're good, um, but they're the kinds of things that we tend to particularly hold on to and pet. <laughs> and, uh, and they really are the things we need to most own for ourselves to get rid of as we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week we started the chapter I intend to finish tonight and hopefully finish the next chapter because it's very brief. We'll see how it goes. So we're in the chapter, The Application of the Doctrine. And we left off studying the first four signs. I think I said four of seven. It's actually four of ten. So as we complete the chapter, we're going to look at the next uh, signs, five through seven. And there's an overlap he's referring to earlier in the book where he helps, try, helps you try to identify uh, what your secret sins are, what your particular problem is, so that you can be repenting and working on it and seeking to grow. And he went through, we went through the first four signs of helping us to particularly identify that. And we're going to continue that tonight and finish the chapter, the application of the doctrine, which is mainly examining and exhorting ourselves about whatever the special sins are. But in so doing, looking a little closer, probing a little more, looking to clean ourselves out, okay? Identifying what that is we need to particularly work on. So I'm picking up with sign five. My intention is to complete the chapter through sign 10 this evening. And if time permits, he has a very helpful pastoral chapter, just like a page and a half or so that I'll try to complete tonight. And we'll be mostly through his study, okay? Just a reminder, next week, uh, we're going to give off, since it turns out to be uh, Valentine's Day, uh, we're going to give off, so we won't have, makes sense to just take a break. And then the 21st, we have our annual meeting, uh, so the next two weeks, actually, we won't have a study, and then we'll come back. Yes, Isaac? Yeah, next Wednesday is the 14th, yeah. Okay, so sign number five. What's another sign that this might be your significant special sin that you want to deal with? He says, here's a sign. If you have a deliberate unwillingness to have it discovered, reproved, and spoken against. When you are fixedly angry at those who tell you plainly of it and reprove you for it, that is your iniquity which you would have spared and dealt gently with. You would have spared and dealt gently with. I don't want to hear about that. Give me a break. You know, come on. There's other things we need to deal with. You would be uh, not so interested in dealing with it. You're def particularly defensive and quick to want to not have to deal with it. Um, other things you might be able to really take the feedback. But this, you're very defensive about. You're more likely to be quick to be offen offended and defensive. That's probably the issue you got to work on the most. That's what he's saying. And he gives an example, 2 Samuel 18.5, where uh, David related to his son Absalom. Uh, Absalom was a heap of trouble in a lot of ways, right? And uh, he and ended up being that way till the end because of it. But uh, he says of his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 18.5, deal gently with the young man, even with Absalom. And that's what we do. Should have probably dealt more directly and strongly with Absalom as Nathan did with him, right? Thou art the man, you got to clean this up, you got to deal with this, but deal gently, don't be too strong, don't be too tough, and 
therefore probably nothing happens. And, and frankly, that can be the issue. I don't think he's exactly making this connection, but a lot of times that can be the issue for parents, Christian parents including. Don't be too direct or difficult about the issue with my child. Let's, let's overlook that. And that's a place where people can be especially defensive, isn't it? I don't think he's necessarily saying that, although that certainly applies. But he's making an illustration, a figurative illustration of um, a metaphor. That's how we deal with our sins, our little pets, our little children. Oh, we, don't be too tough. You know, don't be too tough. Don't you dare spank. For <laughs> don't be too tough with that. He goes on to say this. When your Delilah or your Herodias is reproved, you are in a rage. You fret and storm. When the person or the thing that's influencing you, possibly, or just, again, I think he's being metaphorical, you are quick to get defensive and angry and frustrated. You don't want to think and hear about it. Okay? That's probably the sign. That's the area you got to work on the most. He says, the way you'll know is when you have an unwillingness to be reproved. You're not willing to listen to the wounds of the friend. And you're quick to want to go get the kisses of the enemy of the flattery, right? That proverb we looked at. He says, it must be granted that even a good man whose heart is upright in the main, you know, mostly, may upon surprise in the height of temptation and in the heat of passion, when reproved all of a sudden, just upon the commission of a sin, be angry at reproof and him who gives it. And we have a message, don't kill the messenger, right? And how often they wanted to kill Moses, for instance, right? And God would say, God would often discipline people very severely because he says, they're, 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 they're disobeying me. Moses was just the messenger, you know? And uh, whoever the messenger is to us, doesn't have to be a pastor, uh, don't kill the messenger. You know, be willing to hear the message as from God, right? And a good example would be uh, David with... Um, is it Shimei? Is that, I don't know if I'm saying that name right, but casting, I think, even rocks at him and, uh, and uh, is calling down all problems on him. Now, he does ask Solomon to deal with it differently later. I'm always, I've always wanted to go study that and consider how that all relates. But he says to the people at the time, this is from God. I deserve this, essentially. Let him be. Let him. I deserve this humiliation as we're all having to leave. I believe because of Absalom, because he didn't deal with him. But... Um, I'm going to continue, still on sign number five. If this is something you're particularly defensive about uh, and angry quickly, then that's probably your biggest problem you need to, need to pray to be able to hear and listen to. Uh, then he says, uh, but when the sincere believer recovers himself, he can, with David, bless God for any means, though it is the sharpest reproof that keeps him for sin or recovers him after he falls into sin. He gives us 1 Samuel 25, 32 to 33. Pretty sure that relates to when Nathan the prophet approached him, but I do have Psalm 51 in mind as well. He responded well. He gathered himself and was able to come back around and, and take it like a man, take it like a Christian, and think about it and work on it. Uh, he says, but if you have a fixed abiding displeasure against reprovers, it is a sign of an unsound heart. And if there is any sin that you do not care to have reproved and are angry, though but in present passion at the reprover, it is a sign that sin has too great a hold upon you. And I want to remind us, he's going to bring it up in the next chapter if we get there. We, we talked about it last week. Psalm 141 verse 5. 
When somebody reproves me, let me take it as a blessing. Take, take it as oil anointing me. Uh, I'm going I'm to thank my reprover. That's the heart we want to have in contrast. Okay, so if you're really defensive quickly about it, uh, strongly more than other issues you might be able to take correction on, that's probably the big thing to work on. Sign number six, that this might be the issue you need to particularly work on. He says, is your master sin, this would be your master sin, your reigning corruption, that makes all other sins stoop and bow to it and subserve as means to feed and maintain it. That sin, which as the greater fish devours the lesser. You know, it's funny, you go to the pet store and there's this big tank with a ton of fish swimming around. Uh, They're for eating. (laughs) They're for the other fish, (laughs) you know. Or I was just having this memory uh, when I was working with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood producer before we were going to do a a program there with the elephant barn. I resubmitted an application to the San Diego Zoo. There's a reposting of a similar position. So that came came to my mind. And uh, I was mentioning that as one of the things of accomplishments. It took a long time to get it to happen. Anyways, when we're close to having the show happen we were riding a golf cart early in the morning to the elephant bar to scope it out for the program but we had to give the herpetological expert uh, a ride along the way to the to the reptile uh, reptile exhibit and so that meant that I think between us or right next to her was a box of live mice that was about to be the snake's breakfast (laughs) so sometimes you know all these little mice are really there to serve the snake Right? And, and that's what we need to recognize. What are, what's the snake? That all the other little sins are actually just setting up the table for what you really want to do. Sometimes we allow ourselves to do these other things or involved in other things because they're actually really about the bigger problem. We'll compromise in other things and we'll lie to ourselves about it because it's opening the door or keeping the window open. You know, So pay attention to that and what is the snake that you really need to be looking at? The mice are really not the biggest thing to work on. It's the snake. Okay. Um, sign number seven. Your reigning sin, you will know it, which uh, it not only uh, all your other sins, uh, but also all your duties are made subservient to. And all the religion you profess and seem to have, be it little or much, is made a stalking horse to and a mere step or stirrup to get to the satisfaction of. Thus it was in the case of Jehu. His master's sin was ambition and carnal policy. His great design was settling himself in the kingdom. More on Jehu in a moment. And I'm, I'm going to kind of quote him and, and mention the scriptures, and we won't go there for, for sake of time to make progress tonight. But, you know, ambition and carnal policy, a lot of people make all kinds of compromises for that. We lie, little white lies, we're a little careful, probably don't volunteer something we should. You, you know, think about it related to work. Um, uh, there, we make all kinds of excuses of what is the best and noble behavior and character. Because of our too much ambition, because of certain position we want, our money, or this or that, you know, and got to recognize, is this or that your big issue, and you compromise other things for it. And we've talked about such as the Lord just stayed. The, one of the number one reasons people don't become members and stay here is we actually expect them to keep the Lord's Day holy and show up for worship and not go to work on the Lord's Days, you know. And, uh, and many times the, the answer is, well, God wants me to provide for my family. 
Sure he does, but that doesn't mean he doesn't also want you to provide for your family spiritually by honoring him and not bringing a curse upon you, right? As if that's mutually exclusive, right? Um, tithing our days, let's test him just as much as tithing our money. That's a whole other issue, usually closely related. But, you know, we're, we're going to justify things that maybe a lot of people don't think is that big a deal, but are to God, and therefore we'll, we'll skip church, you know, or we'll do this or that because we're, we're making something else, ambition, career, money, that in themselves are not necessarily, I mean, I don't want to say ambition, but things that are not necessarily wrong. Again, he says, it's not just that the little mice of the sins are serving the big snake's sin, but the big snake is even consuming your duties. It's keeping you from doing what you should. Again, a mission of sin. Or just what you choose to do and focus on sets you up for and what you should be giving some attention to. Uh, you're neglecting because you are making sure not to sacrifice time, resources, money, energy, whatever it is, to really set up that, that big sin. Maybe it's ambition. Uh, he goes on to explain that's what Jehu did. It wasn't out of a godly zeal. He was taking an opportunity uh, that was necessary to happen by God's command, but he wasn't doing it for the right reasons. He was doing it for ambition. I'll, I'll go on to quote him here. Yeah, please. Uh, you got to take the mic. <laughs> I don't remember exactly uh, the comment, but I, I do remember uh, reading Calvin uh, on one occasion regarding ambition. And he definitely uh, had a lot to say about ambition, about okay. it being a snare. And okay. uh, it, was, it was pretty powerful. Well, you know, as you say that, I guess I will comment a little more before we continue with his, his comments further on Jehu, that uh, I think ambition is definitely very American, right? I think we are definitely encouraged to be really ambitious, and have the, what you name it. You know, I don't want to make a list like I sometimes do that makes anything sound wrong. But if we're sacrificing duties and neglecting or, you know, carving off a full kind of service to the Lord, um, that we need to take a look at that. And it seems to me ambition is big. I remember I was in a Bible study. I was pretty young in the faith. Uh, actually, it was, it was before college, so I, I believe I was a believer, but I, I didn't have a good church background. I didn't really have many people in my life influencing me property, properly. And I remember a friend of mine, I still remember her name, Joanna, uh, she was having a Bible study at her house. A few of us were there. And I was just talking about success. I don't even know what I meant by that at that point. I don't think I had a clue what it was, but I know it meant earthly success, you know. And I remember her just asking me the question, define success. And she was really challenging me to think about that in relation to, more broadly, what is success in terms of what God cares about. I never forgot that. I actually mentioned that to her years later when I saw her somewhere. I don't know if things changed for her, but she seemed a little, I don't want to say disturbed, but maybe she needed to revisit that question for herself, it kind of seemed like, you know. Um, I know she was very successful. Her parents were. They're a good Christian home. I remember being there many times, but... Um, but it was also very successful, you know. Uh, anyhow, something to think about. He goes on to say this. His, and again, let's just remember, many different things that we can and should be doing to provide for our family and growing are not in themselves sinful. But whatever is our biggest sinful problem can carve into them, right? And can even direct what we choose to do and not to do 
and all looks good on the outside, but it isn't for the, uh, the concern of what's best for Christ and his church and godliness. It's really more for, it's about me wanting to prove to others something perhaps, you know. Comment, Isaac? Okay, can you, let me get the mic to you. So, one thing is, it just came to my mind right now. The, the people who say, oh, I need to go provide for my family. If you want to provide for your family, like you said, don't go do that so then God doesn't curse you or whatever. You're not providing for your family when you're making God curse you or whatever. Yeah, you, you can't think that God's going to allow shortcuts for what he commands, right? Such as the Sabbath. And the thing that I think these families often don't want to look at is what's happening with their family at the time with the lack of family worship, how that's affecting, affecting the, uh, their kids showing up for church, and if they are, if they're showing up with their minds and hearts, and whether they stay in church, whether they stay with Christ in any way, right? Uh, these are things that are a more important legacy, right? And uh, often that gets sacrificed. We, we kind of have a good song and dance with the church, but at the end of the day, where, where are our next generations with the kingdom in Christ, right? And uh, yeah, so question or, oh, okay. <laughs> well, let me get to the Jehu part, the, the next part of what he says as an illustration. He speaks of uh, Jehu again. His master sin was ambition and carnal policy. His great design was settling himself in the kingdom. That was actually his interest. His positioning himself for his own, his own benefit. It wasn't, a, it wasn't, while God used him as the means of working out what God had said would happen, he wasn't doing it with that honest zeal. He says his zeal in executing the judgments God had threatened against the house of Ahab, and he commanded him to execute, 2 Kings 9, 7, and his zeal in putting down the worship of Baal and pulling down the house and slaying the priests of Baal. All this was to serve his ambition and carnal policy. For he would go no further in reformation than would, as he thought, consist with his worldly interest. And therefore, he still kept up the worship of the calves. He didn't get rid of everything. He did enough and I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time not trying to make an application here in, I think, American politics, but we love to play the church and Christianity with politics and evangelicalism, and we'll only do enough for our own ambitions. We won't really want to change and reform our lives and the life of our nation. That's a real danger. And then it's not really about Christ. It's probably about my money. As is said in many occasions I've heard recently, it's always about money. <laughs> and the love of money, the scripture says, is the root of all evil. <clears throat> he goes on to write, Thus also it was the scribes and Pharisees, same thing, guided by rules of policy, not piety. Wasn't a real concern for going any further than we have to. And it isn't about being different and godly and spiritual. It's, a, it's a, not a Puritan spirit. It's a do as much as is necessary. Uh, you know, so for instance, actually in America and in England years ago, it was most advantageous for you to be a quote-unquote Christian, a churchgoer. But as far as you needed to go with it, it, it was, but it was actually to position yourself for politics, for work, you know. 
Okay, so uh, that's number seven. Not only number six, it's the biggest sin that makes all the other sins kind of serve it, and they are mainly for it, setting up the occasion. But even good things that you do are not really with a pure heart, and they're to occasion your own uh, ambitious goals that are not possibly not actually most Christ-honoring goals. Okay? Um, even what you're doing isn't, reason for, isn't for the right reasons, perhaps. Sign number eight. And again, there's 10 that we're looking at. Sign number eight. Uh, what your reigning sin would be is when it proves too hard for all means of mortification. Now, mortification means killing, right? You just, it just proves too hard to be able to deal with it. It just proves too hard to, to make any significant destruction of its power over you, okay? He says, this is your iniquity between your heart and which there is such a league or covenant that you will by no means part with it, but will keep it and gratify it whatever it costs you. You know, that's that thing, whatever it is, you kind of work with it. You might talk a good game for a while. You might talk about all the things you're going to do. You never actually do them. Or you might sort of toy with little outside things, but you won't follow advice of uh, what is told you really need to deal with as the heart of the issue to really fix the problem. And you really just keep going back to it. And you've never really even conquered it or tried to because you just, at the end of the day, it's conquered you. Isaiah 66, 3, he gives us, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delighteth in their abominations. You just get to the point where it's not possible to delight in the Lord with this and his ways. Uh, you're so delighting in your ways that you've chosen and you've, you've just made a whole life around, a whole lifestyle around. Um, he says, if there is any sin that you allow yourself in notwithstanding all commands promises and threatenings you meet with in the written and preached word and notwithstanding you hear it often reproved by ministers parents other supervisors or christian friends that sin whether of omission or commission is your iniquity a reigning sin though you have had convictions gripes and checks of conscience, fears and terrors, and thereupon have taken up purposes and resolutions and made promises of reformation, of breaking off such sins or setting upon such duties as you have felt the smart of the commission or omission of that sin which you will venture the loss of all rather than forsake it. Though it wastes your estate blasts your credit, undoes your family, weakens and consumes your body, yea, damns your soul, yet you will not leave it. That is your reigning iniquity, be it lasciviousness, drunkenness, or just spending time with loose, drinking, gaming, or wanton companions. You just don't ever really do anything about it. It you just really never intend to. It reminds me of the psalm we looked at. Uh, if, you, uh, if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear you. You regard it in your heart. You haven't really hated it. You haven't really grieved over it. Maybe you hate and grieve the consequences, but you, you really it's still what you prefer to identify with and love. And you're just not really, really ever making any progress at all because you've never really been serious about it. Oh, you can be declaring from the mountaintops of how you're going to conquer it. But you jump, you know, roll right down in the valley at the end of the day and you haven't done a thing different. 
right? Um, because it takes a lot of work, sanctification, right? And especially when we're going to uh, work at our biggest problems, Satan's going to fight us even harder with that, and it really takes some significant work. So whatever it is that really runs you the most, and you just haven't had any real significant growth over, that's what you really need to deal with. And with the prayer, Psalm nineteen thirteen to 14, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins, and let them have no dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and innocent from the great transgression. Presumptuous sins, we looked at that with Watson. Things that you're presuming upon grace. You know you can't do it. You know you shouldn't do it. You know you always give in to it, but you seem to always say, forgive me, Lord, I'm going to do this. And then you ask for the grace after. But you never really say, lead me not into that temptation. Keep me from mine iniquity. And you don't do anything about it. And that's why we're studying this Psalm 18.23, you have kept myself from mine iniquities. How are we going to particularly apply the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer personally to our peak problems? And it goes on to say in verse 14 of Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Sign number nine. You will not part with upon the most advantageous, honorable terms and offers that God makes you, to you in the gospel. God just makes so many wonderful promises and encouragements. It's not just commands against the sins. And when you hear all the grace and all the mercy, you won't yet let that touch your heart to change you. Remember, Jesus says, he who is forgiven much loveth much. And love is the keeping of his commands. But the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace isn't a motivation to you. He says, it is which you will not part with, no, not for Christ the Savior. Though God offers, and what's his offering, remember? He makes an exchange, offers an exchange, Isaiah and Revelation, I believe it's Isaiah. Uh, Buy with me with money you don't have. Just take the grace. But that's not considered a great gift. He says, it's what you will not part with. No, not for Christ the Savior. Though God offers you in the gospel pardon and peace and grace and glory. Christ and all his benefits. And Christ offers himself. And you may have him and all his riches. If you will but come to Christ and to God through him. And be willing to leave your sins and come off of your own righteousness. And yet you will not leave your sins. When you have some inclinations to embrace Christ and are willing to forsake many sins, but there is some sin or sins that you cannot bring your heart to be willing to part with. So that if you could have Christ and your sin too, you would have him. But not else. If I can have Christ... And this horrible sin, okay. But I I can't part with it if that's what it means to really have Christ. He goes on to say, the Judas, uh, thus, Judas's covetousness caused him to sell Christ his Lord and master. The young man's love of the world caused him to go away from Christ sorrowful. Herod did several things, but would not part with his Herodias. Um. Thinking of Herodias, remember that's his wife that shouldn't be his wife, and uh, his brother's wife originally, and that's why he ultimately has John the Baptist beheaded. 
And if you go to, we won't go there, but Matthew 14 is the story, verse 3. He is interested in the Baptist preaching, but doesn't really change. And then in verse 9, the reason he allows his head to be cut off, though he doesn't really want to, is because he's concerned about what everyone will think of him, and that he made a promise to do so, his own, his own reputation. Even though that's violating, he shouldn't keep that vow. Uh, he shouldn't, that's an un- unbiblical vow. Nonetheless, he's too concerned about his own saving face, and so he yeah, lets him have his head cut off. Sign number 10. This is the last one. A sign that your too prevailing corruption is what it is because it most frequently and impetuously sets upon you before, in, and after your conversing with God's ordinances and holy duties. Either to keep you from them, indispose you for them, or crowd in upon you and interrupt your communion with God in them, or after duties to rob you of the benefit of them. Whatever is your worst sinful, you know, your special sins, they make it hard for you to prepare to come to worship. They often are your excuse not to because of you've, you're planning on doing it or you have done it. And they mess you up during the time of worship. They just distract you. you can't, that's what gets your attention. And then afterwards, as you go, you don't really end up getting any benefit from the means of grace. And it's because these things have a chain on you. And you can't make good use of the means of grace. Whatever it is that causes that, you've got to pay attention to that. He says, Satan will be sure at such seasons to stir up such lusts in your heart as are pleasing and are likely to find most easy access and best entertainment, such as possibly worldly and vain thoughts before and in duties, drowsiness, sleepiness, deadness, and dullness of heart and affections. I say the sins that most pester you on Lord's days or other times of either ordinary or extraordinary duties. And so the sins that set on your, you after duties, after the word read or heard, after prayer and receiving the Lord's Supper, and after Sabbaths, be they pride, security, laying down the soul's watch, unruly passions, worldliness, etc. These are your iniquities that you must keep yourself from. Beware of the devil and the sin of your own heart on Monday mornings. And after hearing, praying, fasting, and sacraments. Whatever is your worst sin, maybe it affected you during worship, maybe it kept you from worship, or maybe by the time you're home for worship, the effects of that have already worn off. And you're already giving yourself to things that you just repented of and worshiped that day. Whatever takes you away from the means of grace, makes them ineffective to you, run your world so that you, minimi- you don't get much out of the means of grace. That's what you have to pay attention to. Now, I underlined this part of that quote. Beware of the devil and the sin of your own heart on Monday mornings. That's why I've, I've been challenging you as I did the Lord's Day evening. What are you going to do with this sermon tomorrow morning? And I want to encourage you, as I did last week, what are you going to do with this message tonight before you go home? Have you got on your knees and talked about what is my reigning sin before the Lord and help me identify it and deal with it?
Be careful of your Wednesday evenings, perhaps we should say. Now, I've noted, we won't go there for sake of time, but Matthew 4, 2 to 19, you know the story well, the parable of sowing the seed. And the typical things, the seed looks so great, you know, hear the word gladly and then it doesn't grow. It, uh, It doesn't have any roots to it. Pleasures of the world, right, or this or that affects that the thing doesn't grow. It it might have a little bit of growth fast, but it doesn't last. That's the thing you want to watch out for the most. Even as you would work on these sins, fast but doesn't last is the thing to really be be watching out for. You want to be concerned not only about that Monday morning, but it's the kind of progress like a marathon runner that builds and makes a difference over time, right? Um. What, are, what is it that chokes the word out of your life and causes it from growing and producing any fruit? Yet before I leave it, he says, I shall endeavor to answer one question or case of conscience and therefore show the difference between a beloved lust, a reigning sin in an unregenerate man, and a tyrannizing, prevailing corruption in a godly person. Because some doubting Christians will really struggle with this. So again, he's going to be very pastoral. And I do believe I can get through this next chapter uh, in, in an appropriate amount of time. I'd like to give that with you. Because again, this is a lot of heavy stuff we heard the last two weeks. And remember, he's had some pastoral disclaimers early on. Uh, but I want to get to this next chapter 7 that's going to do that again for us. So there is a difference between a reigning sin and a tyrannizing sin. You know, a king or a tyrant. Uh, a reigning sin means you're not, he's, you're not regenerate. You're unregenerate, and the thing owns you. Uh, a tyrannizing sin, it's like a tyrant. Ugh, it's such a pain. You're always trying to keep from getting more control over you, but you know, you're working on it, and he doesn't own you. Okay? And he wants to help the sensitive Christian conscience that may feel, oh, there's no hope. You know, and again, that's not the point of the study or dealing with sins or anything. right? Uh, the point is that we would make progress in piety, we grow in godliness, that we wouldn't run and hang ourselves, (laughs) right? Okay. So this chapter I want to give to you as I think a nice disclaimer, and after that I believe there's, um, I think there's only two more chapters. Yeah, so um, we'll have a couple weeks before we're back. There's only two more chapters that I want to cover in the book. Uh, The rest is uh, uh, a funeral, uh, his farewell sermon when he was being forced to leave the ministry because of the situation in England at the time. He was a dissenter, so they were forcing him out of the ministry. It's an amazing sermon to his people. I'm not going to be able to minister to you anymore. It's an amazing sermon. Uh, remember, these things we're studying now are his sermons 40 years before the publisher got him to finally publish on uh, these sermons. These are his sermons on this topic with Psalm 1823. And then he also has a, a funeral sermon that was preached for him. Uh, and I think there's one other thing, and I, I'm not covering that part of the book. I'm going to finish it before I put it back in the library, though. But uh, so we just have a few more chapters that are the sermons directly related to this topic. Just to let you know, there's some other good stuff in there if you want to borrow the book later. Okay, the difference between a reigning sin related to the unregenerate and a tyrannizing corruption related to the regenerate Christian who has to keep dealing with this biggest problem in his or her life. Number one. That is a beloved lust, a reigning sin that is indulged and that the soul makes provision for, that a man caters for and casts about how to provide that which may feed and maintain it. 
I'm thinking about like Haman with making the gallows and trying to hang Mordecai. Like he just, he was obsessed with his position and honor and, and he's, he just has to build the highest gallows and he just can't stand on this one man and allows himself to lose everything because he just has to have that man's attention too. Uh, but he gives us Romans thirteen fourteen: Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. He says to pamper the flesh. It is a beloved friend that you make special provision for and cast about how you may best entertain. Therefore, if you, if you set your thoughts to work to find out a commodious way to commit such a sin. Now again, this is different than Psalm 51 when David is confronted by Nathan with horrible sin, but he repents. And Psalm 32, a parallel psalm speaks about, you know, my bones were like dry and rotting until you've finally help me repent about this. He couldn't have peace with it. Or you, or you have uh, the heart of uh, Romans 7 that he has quoted a lot in the earlier chapters. That which I don't want to do, I do. That which I want to do, I don't do. Who will rescue me? Like, you don't have a peace about it. You're acknowledging this is a tormentor, tormenting tyrant, but you're concerned about it. You're fighting. Uh, you hate it when you give in and you want to keep getting up and do better. Uh, when it's a reigning sin, you don't care. And that's something we always try to encourage and pastor people with. Look, if, if you weren't a Christian, because some start to wonder if they're a true Christian, if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't care about this. You, you, you wouldn't keep trying to deal with it. You wouldn't be grieving and hating it and want to see it grow. Then he goes, when sin does, he says, when sin does not so much overtake you, as you follow hard after and overtake sin. It's not even so much that sin's overtaking you. You're not praying, please don't lead me into temptation to deliver me from evil. You're, you're tempting yourself and you're going after the evil. If, if you're really honest with yourself in the mirror, you're actually going after it. It's not coming after you. Uh, he says, even lesser sins in the case may be reigning sins if you set yourself up to sleep at divine worship. For instance, he says, you set yourself up to sleep, lesser sins could be causing some things like that. Then he says, but on the other hand, so he's talking about what would be a reigning sin over an unregenerate. On the other hand, a tyrannizing corruption over a true Christian, he says, but on the other hand, those sinful thoughts break in upon you, or you commit some outward acts of sin, as Galatians 6.1, you are overtaken with a fault but do not make provision for the flesh, but endeavor to cut off all provisions from it. Flee from all occasions of it. Use all means to cut sin and the flesh short and keep them under. If drowsiness and holy duties seizes on you and you endeavor to shake it off, you know, you're doing holy violence. Slap your face, wake up, go outside, throw some water on your face. You know, just for the, that example he gives. Uh, something to say? Okay, let me give you the... Uh, you have the mic? Hey, Isaac, let me bring it up. I'm going to share part of this with you. This is just okay. a portion of tomorrow's nugget. Okay. We're dealing by William Gouge, speaking of the whole armor of God. Mm. And he says that the danger makes us watchful. And he said, 
by this inference, the, the apostle gives us to understand that the more dreadful and dangerous our enemies are, the more careful we ought to be to stand upon our guard and look to our defense. And uh, the sum of it <clears throat> is a direction to instruct us how to defend and keep ourselves safe against the devil. Thank you. Yeah, so to help you know that you don't need to see this as you're an unbeliever, you're working on it. Or you, you know you need to get back to working on it, or it's bothering you, and you're, you're looking at building a hedge around it. You're, you're thinking of scriptures to memorize and study and deal with it. It's on your mind. You grieve over it. You hate it. You want to do better. Um, that's, uh, you're doing all you can to, to conquer, be more than conquer in that situation. Number two, another pastoral disclaimer. Another difference between a beloved lust, a reigning sin in the unregenerate and insincere, and a tyrannizing corruption in the regenerate and upright is this. That is, a reigning sin in any that is suffered to have quiet and peaceable possession in the heart that a person is unwilling to have disquieted or himself disturbed in the committing of, the sin that is not resisted, that you do not believe, pray, and watch against. And when you have fallen into it, do not endeavor speedily to recover yourself out of by acts of faith and repentance and by earnest prayer, endeavors and watchfulness against it for time to come. A clean beast may fall into the mire, but gets out of it again as soon as it can. It is a swine that lies and loves to wallow in the mire. You just don't have any concern to try to get out of it or change. You really don't. That's when you need to be concerned. But he wants to say that to contrast it to how a Christian will be. But one thing that comes to mind for me is uh, what Ahab says to Elijah in 1 Kings 18, 17, and 18. Something like this. Why do you trouble Israel? You troubler of Israel. Speaking to Elijah. You know, Elijah says, I'm not troubling Israel. You're troubling Israel, right? It's your sinful leadership and all the things you're doing with your sinful wife that the Lord is sending me to correct and deal with. You're the one bringing trouble on yourself. I again, I'm just the messenger, <laughs> you know. But he doesn't, he doesn't want, and then, you know, his son after him, right? We've had some sermons, and they want to say Ahaz, uh, not long after that, you know, I don't want to hear from Ahab. That guy never, or excuse me, Elijah, he's, he's going to, or whether it's a Micaiah also, right? They're just, they only have bad things to say for me. I only want prophets that are going to lie to me and tell me how good I am, right? I don't want to be troubled. <laughs> Give me a break. That's a sign. You don't want to hear from the prophets, right? And of course, there's a lot of overlap here. That's the sign of an unregenerate. He says, but now that is not a reigning sin in you, in you, but now that is not a reigning sin in you, though it too often prevails over you. That you grieve for, mourn under, and will not suffer to be quiet in your soul, but resolve it shall not ever have a quiet day. No, nor even a quiet hour in you. If you resist it by the weapons of your spiritual warfare, pray and apply Christ against it. And when you are overtaken with it, are not at rest till you renew your faith and repentance and look up to Christ for strength again as well as the pardon of it. He is cleanly, he is a cleanly person who, though he falls into the dirt, cannot rest till he gets out of it and is cleansed again. 
That's the encouragement for you to know you're a Christian. You are not happy with it. Now, sometimes, and I think he's going to touch on this next, it isn't that we necessarily respond good the first time, but it stays with us like a stone in the shoe, catches up to us and turns, turns our walk around, right? Okay, number three, and this is what we close with, uh, a, a pastoral comment to help you discern and not doubt your Christianity, uh, not think you're an unregenerate unbeliever. Uh, depending on the, the, what he's describing as the situation and, and how you're dealing with it. Okay? That is a beloved lust. So again, the reign of the lust as, you, as your king, and Christ clearly not your king. That is a beloved lust when you are deliberately angry at any person or thing that stands in your way or would hinder you from committing it. When you are angry at the word when that meets with your sin. But, on the other hand, if you are glad to have your sin discovered and reproved, and when the word comes closest to it, can say, as Psalm 141.5, that it is a kindness, and as an excellent oil in your estimation, when you can bless God for anything that hinders you from committing it, as David in 1 Samuel 25.32-33 David blessed God, yea, Abigail, as an instrument for preventing his shedding of blood. I might have misspoken when I mentioned an earlier reference to David in 1 Samuel. I think I said it was Nathan. It might, might have been also a reference to Abigail. So apologies for not double-checking that. Then he says this, If you can bless God for affliction when it keeps you from sin. That's a good sign. And he gives us what we did look at last week. Uh, Psalm 119, 67, 71, and 75. He says, then it is no reigning sin. If you can thank God for affliction that is going to be useful to bring you closer to him and his word and to stop sinning and walk in his ways, if you can say, thank you for humbling me, thank you for breaking me down and not let me go further in this and what it would have meant even more for me and on others, um, that's a good sign. And uh, it may be that he's putting it on your heart in prayer for some time, that you're concerned about those things. You know, there's different, different parts of our stories and histories with these different things. But I appreciate, and I, I hope that'll be a good place to stop. I wanted to try to close with that tonight. We're not done with the study. I have two more chapters to cover. Um, but keep in mind that distinction, because the goal is that you are expressing Romans 7, which I do agree with. Uh, that's Paul as a converted Christian who is yet going through the difficulty of growing in grace and regretting he doesn't do what he wants to do and that he does what he doesn't want to do, but he wants to be rescued. And he asks Christ and recognizes Christ rescues him. And then he goes into chapter 8. And he talks about a lot of wonderful things. The Spirit prays for us. We're adopted in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It's all connected. And remember, that goes back to chapter 6 where we don't say, oh, You know, the grace of God is shown in our sinning. Let grace abound. Let sin abound. The grace more abound. He says, God forbid. That's not the point of grace, right? We're not the ones that say, oh, let sin abound. That grace may abound. No way. We're not going to presume upon God's grace, right? Presumptuous sins. That's something to encourage you not to give up. And you're fighting the good fight. And you're running the race for Christ. And you're asking the Holy Spirit to bear good fruits in you and help you grow. 
and uh, asking that God would give you more of the Holy Spirit and that you wouldn't quench him uh, or grieve him. And ultimately, again, as Jabez prayed, that the Lord would keep us from our iniquities, that we would not grieve ourselves. And let's remember that the sin will always come back on us, and more than anything else, it will cause us grief. It will ruin our lives and our ability to enjoy anything that would otherwise be good in life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for showing us these other signs of what might be our special sins. And I pray that you help us all to be making a list, possibly literally, and on our knees before you praying, thinking about scriptures that we need to memorize and study, uh, thinking about other things that need to go away, even adiaphora, because they are uh, the smaller mice or even the good things that lead to the big sin. Protect us from avarice, O Lord. Protect us from ambition. Protect us from pride. Protect us from the wrong motives, therefore, that only go as far as we need to and no further where you would take us in Reformation and uh, the heart of the Puritans. Lord, give us a Puritan spirit, a Berean spirit, set by reformanda. Show us, Lord, where we can keep growing. As Psalm 139 says, even show us our secret sins. Cleanse us from all iniquity. Oh, Lord, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, especially our special sins, you who are faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and help us to grow in grace and goodness for your glory and to make progress in piety for you, our Prince of Peace. We pray, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.